morning. Our scripture reading is Daniel 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up in the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised upon one side. It had three ribs in its mouth and in its teeth. It was told, Arise and devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment." And the books were opened. I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and the glory and kingdom that all peoples, nation, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Praise be to God. Well, hopefully you're already there in Daniel 7. Did you all get all of that? I don't need to explain any of it. You can just go from here. Okay, good. Well, before we get in, um, just a quick family matter. Two couples got engaged this past week. Right here, Will and Brooke, Stu and Megan. Um, three of them were saved last year, right? And uh, so this is like our new strategy as a church. We're going to like bring people in from the harvest. They're going to meet. They're going to get married. Then we're going to have babies. And we're going to build our children's ministry from the harvest. So we're really excited for you guys. Pumped. And um, yeah, just incredible. So anyways, Daniel 7. Let's get into it. Um, so I was, uh, I was reading an article on The Futurist uh, this past week. And it was, uh, it was so funny to me. And I want to share it with you. It was really an article about some of the worst predictions ever made in the history of the world. And, and I want to share them with you because we're diving into biblical prophecy together for the first time ever as a church. And so why not look at some really bad predictions over the course of human history? Look at this one from a Roman engineer named Julius Sextus Fontanus in AD 100. He said, inventions have long since reached their limit and I see no hope for future developments. <laughs> um, how about this one from John Eric Erickson, surgeon to Queen Victoria in 1873. He said, the abdomen, the chest, and the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the wise and humane surgeon. Again, wrong. Um, how about this one from 1893 from a journalist? 
Law will be simplified over the next century. Lawyers will have diminished and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. (laughs) And all of the lawyers in the room were like, thank God that was not true. Oh, I love this one. Albert Einstein's teacher talking to Einstein's father in 1895. It doesn't matter what he does. He will never amount to anything. Two more. 1949 by a computer scientist. It would appear we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. And then finally, Bob Metcalf from InfoWorld in 1995. He said, I predict the internet will go spectacularly supernova and in 1996, catastrophically collapse. I think some of us kind of wish he was right there. We don't do a very good job of trying to predict the future is the point. And yet what's really fascinating and a little bit ironic about us humans is that we love doing it and we do it all of the time. In fact, Intel hires a guy, they have a guy on their staff who has one job and his entire job, salaried position, probably makes great money for this. Intel hires this guy and his one job is to try to forecast future events so that when they design their chips, they'll actually be useful in 15 years. I think the best thing about this job is that his boss will have no idea if he's wrong for 15 years. So, like, this is major job security. I read another story. Hindu seer, religious guru, who was convinced that he knew the exact day and year that his soul was going to depart from his body. He had predicted that the morning of November 17th, 2004, not sure exactly what time, but he knew it was that morning He was going to become a cow or something like that. And so 15,000 people in eastern India gathered to watch this guru meditate and then die. Because what else are you going to do? And I don't know. That sounds like an entertaining morning for for all of us. So at 6 a.m., he started meditating. And I don't know if he just chose the wrong position, like he was in downward dog. He should have been in the crane. But he, he didn't die. And the, the 15,000 people who came to watch him were so mad that they turned violent and they started a riot and the police had to drive them home with batons. Again, we're not really good at predicting the future. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer or a futurist or a religious guru or Bob Metcalf. We don't have the ability to look down the corridor of time and stick a pin in future events as awesome as it would be. This is why the second half of the book of Daniel is so incredibly profound and inspiring because these five chapters um, that we're gonna be looking at for for the next several weeks aren't just full of human predictions about what might happen in the future. They're full of divinely inspired prophecies about what will happen in the future. Guaranteed, you can take it to the bank. Now, the first half of the book of Daniel was all historical biography. The second half of the book is all apocalyptic prophecy. And if you were here in week one, I told you that the first half of the book is all about how to live in the present with courage and resolve and and, and excellence and all of that. The second half of the book is all about what we're supposed to set our hope in for the future. And what we're going to see over these next few weeks is that those two things go hand in hand. So the reason that we pursue excellence in everything that we do, the reason that we can persist in obedience, the reason that we can persevere with courage and resolve, whether Babylon hates us or kings are trying to kill us or our neighbors are turning on us or whatever, the reason that we can do that is because our future is certain, that our deliverance is secure, our inheritance can't be taken from us. And so our faithfulness in the present hinges on what we know is going to happen in the future. And so that's what we're going to explore for the next few weeks in the second half of the book of Daniel. Before we get there, though, this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to convince the church at Corinth, these believers in Corinth, that should motivate their lives. And I'll show you this in 2 Corinthians 4. He's talking about all of his suffering. And he says, We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on the things that are seen in the present, but on the things that are unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So what I want you to see from this and what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Daniel is what actually gives us courage and joy and strength and peace in the midst of all of the pressure and all of the suffering and all of the affliction of exile. What is that? It's the fact that we can set our hearts on the promise of eternal glory. We can fix our eyes on the future, on the things that are unseen, that are eternal, not the things that are seen and fading away. Those are the things that lead to faithfulness and courage. And so my prayer for the next few weeks as we get into all this really crazy prophecy about mutant beasts and horns and, and all this crazy stuff, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that our hearts would be strengthened like Paul's, that our resolve would be steeled up like Daniel's, that our confidence and our courage would be just stirred up exactly like those Hebrew teenagers were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of the fiery furnace. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. So with that being said, let's dive into Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is basically made up of three different scenes. We're going to tackle these scenes as best we can today, but I'm going to tell you up front, we're going to leave some for next week because it's connected to chapter 8, but I'll show you and explain more of that as we go. But these scenes are wild, as you just saw. I mean, mutant beasts coming up out of the sea like Godzilla, and you know, thrones of fire and river, rivers of fire gushing out of them and, and all of these like myriads upon myriads of, of divine beings worshiping the ancient of days. And then there's um, the son of man surfing on the clouds. And, and it's all of this really wild imagery. And on the surface, it's a little hard to wrap our minds around. On the surface, it's a little bit intimidating, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be that easy to make sense of. But what I want you to see today is that as we unpack these three scenes, the message becomes obvious, and the message becomes super clear. And so I'm going to explain it to you, and you're going to leave here being like, I am a Bible prophecy expert. Like, I've got it. I'm not going to give you a timeline. That's not what this is actually about. We'll get to that maybe later. But you're going to leave understanding Daniel 7. Again, it's meant to encourage us, not confuse us. So just to give you a heads up of where we're going, scene one, it's all about the brutality of humanity and the myth of progress. Scene two is all about the sovereignty of God and his divine justice. And then scene three is going to be all about the victory of Christ and the vindication of his people. All three of these scenes pass through Daniel's mind as he's sleeping like a, a vision, almost like he's watching a movie on a screen. I kind of imagine a, a, a Christmas story, not a Christmas story. What's the one with Scrooge? Christmas Carol, thank you. I always imagine like a Christmas Carol where Scrooge is being taken from past to present to future and it's vivid and it's alive and it's real and, and it's like he's there. That's, that's something like what's going on with Daniel as he's sleeping. He's in it, it's alive, and as soon as he wakes up, he gets out his pen and his paper and he just writes it all down. And so this is what we're gonna look at. Let's, let's dive into these three scenes. First, the brutality of humanity and the myth of progress. Look back at verse two. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked, and there were before me were, were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, meaning it's in all directions. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. Now, let's stop there because this is actually a parallel vision to the vision that Nebuchadnezzar got in, in chapter 2. It, hopefully, most of you were there. If not, you can go back and look at it. But in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of this statue, and the statue is made up of all these different metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the clay and the feet. And these represent successive kingdoms. Well, in this vision, it's talking about the same thing, except it's mutant beasts. So you have a lion with eagle's wings representing the kingdom of Babylon. And even more specifically, it represents King Nebuchadnezzar himself, 
The, the language of the text says that the, the wings were plucked off of him and he was forced to be on his, his hands and his knees, but then his mind was returned to him and he was given the mind of a man again and he was able to walk on two feet. That's what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. The lopsided bear represents the Medo-Persian empire and the reason that the bear is lopsided, if you look back at the text, is because Persia was way stronger than the Median Empire, and eventually Persia just overtook everything. And yet, whenever the Bible talks about Persia, it's always the Medes and the Persians. So it's a lopsided bear, and the bear's got three ribs in its mouth because it's just overtaken Babylon. Then, after the bear, you've got this leopard with four wings and four heads, and this leopard represented the Greek Empire. And the idea behind the imagery here was that the conquest of Greece was incredibly fast. Leopards are incredibly fast by themselves. Don't want to try to outrun a leopard, but if you add four wings onto a leopard, you got no hope. Okay, that thing is going to get you. And so that's what he's talking about. This, this conquest of the Greeks is going to be swift. It's going to be efficient. And if you look at Greek history, do you know how long it took Alexander the Great to conquer the known world? 13 years. It was rapid, it was swift, and it's said that after he conquered his last empire, he put his head in his hands and he wept because there was no more territory to conquer. He just did it too fast. He didn't produce an heir either, which is why this beast has four heads, because after he dies, the kingdom is divided up among his four generals, and, and on and on it goes. So this all makes sense, right? This is easy. You're, 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 you're an expert at Daniel 7 right now. This is where it gets fascinating, though, is, is beast number four. Beast number four is more terrifying, more frightening, more powerful than all of the other beasts combined. And um, what we see as we, as we look at Daniel 7, and as he describes this fourth beast, is that there are a lot of similarities between the fourth beast and the other beasts, but Daniel makes a point. It's almost like he's bending over backwards to show us that this kingdom is different. In fact, he actually says that. Old Testament scholars agree that in some ways, this fourth kingdom represents the Roman Empire because of the iron teeth. And if you remember from chapter 2, the, the, the iron legs represented the Roman Empire. And so this kingdom or this beast has iron teeth. And yet, it is so much more than the Roman Empire. It's, it's got remnants of Rome. It's got the ten horns, which point back to the ten toes and the statue and what it's showing is that it's got remnants of Rome, but it's a future kingdom. It hasn't been established yet. And it's unlike any other kingdom that we have ever seen on the face of the planet. It makes sense because when you look closely at the prophecy as a whole, again, Daniel is bending over backwards to show us how different it is. I've got a couple of, of, of verses as a summary that I want to show you real quick. So, for example, in Daniel 7, 7 verse 7, Tim, I think I have this one. Um, go, go to the next one. And the next one? Okay, I don't have it. Go back. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay, verse 7 um, it says that it's different than the preceding three. You can circle that. Hey, there it is. You found it, man. Give Tim a round of applause. Let's go, Tim. I'm not an easy guy to work for, I know. Um, verse 19, we're not even paying him. Verse 19 says it's, uh, it's different in its viciousness and its voraciousness. Verse 23 and you can circle these in your Bible if you want to. Verse 23 says it's different in the scope of its domination, its dominion. Verse 8 and 24 tell us it's different in the ruler it produced. That's important. We're going to look at that more in a minute. Verse 25, the per per persecution it carries out. So those last two are really significant. And I want to explain them a little bit more. So look at verse 8 with me. This is going to talk about the ruler that this kingdom produces. It says, while I was thinking about the ten horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them. And this is talking about the Antichrist. The three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. In other words, it had eyes that looked human, but if you looked closer behind those eyes, there was something else. There was something demonic. There was something supernatural empowering this, this little horn, this Antichrist. Now let's look at the persecution that this ruler carries out. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change and set times and laws. The holy people 
will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and a half. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about the Antichrist in more detail next week. But I want you to understand today what Daniel is trying to communicate in this description of the four kingdoms is the fact that human history is nothing more than a succession of brutal and terrifying beast-like kings and kingdoms. Hell-bent on devouring everyone and everything around them. As Barbara Tuchman once put it, revolutions produce other men, not new men. Other tyrants, other oppressors, other atrocities, other crimes against humanity, and on and on it goes. The regime might change, uh, the ruler might be replaced, but the story will always be the same in the end. And all of that culminates with a kingdom that ends up being everyone's worst nightmare. That's the end of human history. The world doesn't get more peaceful, it gets more bloody. It doesn't look more and more like heaven, it ends up looking more and more like hell. The apex of human history actually becomes the apex of human evil and rebellion. Led by the Antichrist himself, it will be more savage, it will be more unjust and bloodthirsty than everything else that came before it. In other words, it won't just be different in the vastness of its dominion because it's going to cover the whole earth. It will be different in the vastness of its depravity. This is where we're going. If you think it's an exaggeration, I understand. If you think I'm being pessimistic, I get it. When I talk about the myth of progress, you could easily be like, but, but Ben, like we have progressed so much in the 21st century to, to where we were back like, you know, in 500 BC. And I would be like, yes, 100%, we, we totally have. Um, science and technology and human ingenuity have improved our lives in so many incredible ways, of which I'm very grateful for. For example, we have plumbing now. Amen to, to plumbing. We have electricity and medicine. Like when, when my kids get the flu, I like, I just give them some medicine. I'm not thinking like they're dying tomorrow, you know? Um, we have the internet and transportation and all kinds of other things that have dramatically increased the quality of our life, though the internet maybe not so much. You and I live better today. You and I maybe we're like, um, some lower class, some middle class, some upper middle class. Maybe we have some like some of the 1% in here. I don't know. I haven't met you if, if we do. Um, you haven't revealed yourself yet, um, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, but um, it doesn't matter who you are in this room right now. Every single one of you live better than any king ever dreamed of 500 years before Christ was born. So that means King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet, the wealthiest king who lived at the time would have traded all of his gold for the basic necessities that you have in your home. Like he would have killed for that little thing that you've got behind the, the, the pantry door, at least ours is behind the pantry door, that little box and you push some buttons and it just like makes your food for you. What is that madness? It's magic. Like a warm shower with the snap of your finger on and on it goes Man, we have advanced so much. <laughs> and this is amazing for me because I can't sleep without a shower at night. And I don't do well in tents. This is why I hate camping. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Let's go. Let's, you know what? Like the way, they, the way they had to live is a thrill for us. We just camp for fun because it makes us feel like we have nothing. And it's a thrill. It's like we're going to die. You know? And, and then we don't die and we go back to our warm. Anyway, okay. Um, this is what Daniel wants us to see in the first scene, though. While there are a lot of things that have gotten better in the last 2,500 years about our civilizations, as a whole, humanity is not more civilized than we were back then. Civilization has enhanced, but we are still barbarians. I, I, let me prove it to you. Think about the last century. 
Think about Armenian liquidation day of 1915. 600,000 Armenians were executed with unbelievable cruelty, like some of them literally had their heads squeezed in vices until they just passed out. That sounds like Babylon, 500 BC. That's brutality. Or think about Black Friday during World War II when the Japanese troops went through Alexandria Hospital in Singapore and they bayoneted every patient and every doctor and every nurse to death and then they tied all hundreds of Chinese civilians hand to hand and massacred them on the beaches. That's barbarism. That's Babylon, 500 BC. Or think about Stalin in the 30s or Hitler in the 40s or Idi Amin in the 70s and the brutality that they inflicted on millions and millions of people. The 20th century humanists were convinced that their generation would be the peak generation of humanity and development and progress and utopia would be ushered in on their watches and yet the exact opposite happened. Science and technology solved so many of our problems, but you know what it couldn't solve? It couldn't solve the problems within. It couldn't change us. And so instead of ushering in an age of peace, it just gave us more ways to kill each other, more efficient ways to kill each other. Here's the thing, though. The 21st century hasn't been much better. Middle East is still full of all kinds of conflict, all kinds of brutality. Africa is still full of bloodshed. China's trying to wipe out the Uyghurs. Putin's trying to take over Ukraine. On and on and on it goes. And so the British philosopher John Gray has written extensively on the myth of progress. You should read his work sometime. He said this. He said, our situation now is similar to what the situation was in 1930. There have been many changes and some for the better. The emancipation of women and gays, development of democracy around the world, large increases in standards of living for hundreds of millions of people. But... Other things are the same. Although there are different players, geopolitical struggles for natural resources, wars of ethnicity and territory, the return of religion as a central factor in political and military conflict, the world is rather like that of the 1930s. Civilization has gotten better, but humanity has not become more civilized in the process. Just look at the comment section on YouTube. Or pay attention to how people act on Twitter. We're not getting any better. We all still act like a bunch of mutant beasts. One day, all of this is going to climax in the beast of beasts. In the son of lawlessness, the little horn who will take over the world and wage war against the people of God. That's scene one a brutal view of history, an honest view of humanity, and a terrifying view of the Antichrist that everything is leading up to. And I would just like to say at this moment in time, I am so glad that that wasn't the only scene Daniel got. That leads us to the second scene. Sovereignty of God and his divine justice. Now the scene shifts dramatically in verse nine. And if, you're, if you look back at verse nine, it's again, it's like Scrooge. He's in the past, and then all of a sudden, he's just swept forward to another time. It's like we're in the past. We're seeing all of these beasts coming up out of the sea. It's crazy. It's chaotic. And then all of a sudden, we're in the throne room of God in heaven. Chaos is everywhere. Destruction is everywhere. But now the Ancient of Days is ruling and reigning and thrones are set up and he's surrounded by his divine council and there's millions of divine beings serving him and worshiping him. And there are two things that really stand out to me about God in this scene that I think are so important because I think they're really where the beginning of hope lies for you and me. I wanna show you these two things, but the world is brutal and yes, it's only going to get worse as time goes on, especially for you and I who love him. But these two things have the power to get us through all of it with joy and with peace and with resolve. We don't have to be pessimists. We don't have to be defeatists. We don't have to be nihilists. Because there's something going on behind the scenes. Something that transcends the chaos. And we get a glimpse of it in this prophecy. It's going to make everything all right. So what are these two things that I want you to see about God? The first thing is that God 
is a God who is full of composure. And you could call it sanity or poise or whatever. But verse 9 says, look at this with me. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days sat down. He took his seat. And I just love that because the beasts are causing chaos. The little horn is wreaking havoc. The kingdoms of men are raging against the Lord's anointed. And any, anybody else in the world would be panicking at this point in time or at least pacing up and down his courtroom and asking his counselors for, for some advice and for some help, but not the Ancient of Days. As one author put it, he sits, he doesn't stew. He just takes a load off on the seat of authority and dominion. He's calm and he's composed. And Psalm 2 tells us that all of the commotion of nations are nothing more than a comedy special before him. And he sits in heaven and he laughs. It's entertainment. I was thinking about this subculture that we have in our country here uh, where people like to play dress up and reenact wars. Um, ancient not ancient wars, we're not ancient, we're only like 100 years, 200 years old as a country. Um, American wars from American history, there, there's this whole subculture where people will spend tons of money and tons of time to dress up and, and play war with each other. And if that's you, that's fine, that, it's awesome. Some people like to dress up and play sports, some people like to dress up and play war. Have fun, um, it, it's cool. Uh, the biggest reenactment like this in our country is, is Gettysburg. And... Uh, at Gettysburg, every single year, 5,000 of these people will show up in their costumes that they paid $4,000 for. It's a very expensive game. Um, they'll have 200 horses. They'll have 70 cannons. And this show will last for four days. So people come from all over the country to watch the Gettysburg War again, and people pretend to die and all this kind of stuff. Now, I was just thinking about this subculture, and I, I was just trying to imagine, what if I took my family to Gettysburg, and I've got my little kids with me, Claire, who's just turned three, and she can hardly talk, and she's, you know, she's a, she's a kid, and then you've got, like, Liv, who's sick. She's a little bit smarter and more mature, and then you've got Nicholas, who's, you know, he's the man. He's really smart. He knows what's going on, so he wouldn't be fooled. But I just imagine, we're, we're a homeschool family. We can do whatever we want. So we're like, let's go, let's go to Gettysburg. Let's like take a field trip. Let's go have school up at, up, at the, up at the place where it actually happened. And we pack our picnic, and the kids are having a blast. And we're like, let's go eat our lunch right in the middle of the field where the war happened, where the battle happened. And, and we, we put our blanket down, and we're eating, but we have no idea that this reenactment is about to happen. And then all of a sudden, like guns start going off and cannons are exploding and, and angry men are yelling. 5,000 of them are charging toward us and horses are galloping. And, and we would immediately been a, be in a state of utter panic, right? Utter terror. We'd be falling over each other. I'd be grabbing Claire and Liv and I'd be running like this and it would be total chaos, because we'd have no idea what was going on. But here's the thing that I, I want you to see. Did you know that panic and terror flow out of the unknown? Terror, panic, fear, all of that kind of stuff flow out of the unexpected. This is why darkness is so terrifying, because you don't know what's in front of you. So everything's scary. And so every, every person who shows up to Gettysburg for the reenactment, who knows that the guns and the horses and the cannons and the angry men are nothing more than a play, are going to be having a blast. They're going to get their popcorn out and they're going to be enjoying it. Oh, look at that guy just died. You know, oh, this is amazing. They're going to have a great time. This is what I want you to see. This is what Daniel wants us to see about God and his sovereignty in the world. Knowing the outcome of a conflict changes our response in the conflict. God takes his seat even as the beasts are ravaging his good creation because he already knows what's going to happen to the beasts. From his perspective, there has never been a battle or a conquest or a revolution in the history of the world that was anything more than a mere reenactment. Nothing. 
has ever been anything that he has not seen, that he has not ordained, some of it even decreed. And so in spite of all of our scheming and planning and warring and plotting, and in spite of the fact that the serpent is trying to wield his influence as much as he can, nothing catches him off guard. And so he sits on his throne and he gets out his popcorn and he laughs at the nations as they rage. First thing, that's, that's what we've got to see is his composure. The second thing that we see about God is that his throne is a throne of judgment. Look back at verse 9. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I tried to give an illustration of books being opened two weeks ago. It was a total disaster. I'm awful at numbers, so I'm not going to try to do that again. But essentially, what, what God is doing is he's opening the scrolls. He's rolling out the books. And he's saying, this is what every single one of you have done. And now he's judging the world. Throughout the Old Testament, do you know what the sign of judgment was? Well, you have the flood, so that was water. But that, that was a one-time thing, thank God. Most of the other times, it's fire. Fire represented the presence of God, and fire represented the judging presence of God. So, for example, Leviticus 10, fire comes out of the presence of the Lord and consumes the sons of Aaron. Numbers 11, fire of his wrath consumes the people on the outskirts of the Israelite camp. Number 16, the fire of God's presence consumes 250 men who are offering the incense. Finally, Deuteronomy 4.24 the Israelite people are called to obey God and to worship God because he is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And so the point is that when Daniel sees the throne of God burning with fire and a river shooting out from his throne that is a full of fire, the point is that the Ancient of Days isn't just sitting down with popcorn watching everything indifferently. He's not just laughing, but he is exercising judgment and he's consuming the wickedness of mankind with the fire of his fury. The books are open and every atrocity Every crime against humanity, every beast-like deed that has ever been carried out in the history of the world will be exposed and consumed. In the end, God purges the world of evil, and he does it with the fire of his just and his pure and his righteous wrath. Nothing takes him by surprise and Nothing goes unpunished. So he is a God of composure and he is a God of justice and judgment. In the late 90s, Democratic Republic of Congo collapsed and uh, the president was forced out. And there was a season where there was just so much brutality and so many atrocities were committed and all kinds of injustice was carried out. And one of the men who lived there who had witnessed and endured a lot of these atrocities, and he had family members and friends who had been tortured and killed. He was able to escape with his wife and his three daughters, and his name was Ima. And um, they fled by foot to Uganda, which was over 800 miles, just to, to flee as refugees. And they finally get to Uganda, and they have absolutely nothing. And so for several months, they lived uh, an awful, miserable existence. They had no plumbing. They had no electricity. They barely had any food. In fact, they would eat one meal every two days together as a family of five. And they just suffered and struggled. Five refugees huddled together in a tiny room, clinging on to life. Later on, Ima was called into ministry, and he went to seminary and became friends with this British pastor. And one day he was in the library with his friend, and he just opened up about all of the evil that he had endured and all of the atrocities that he had witnessed. And he, he couldn't help himself. In spite of himself, he just started bawling. I mean, he's just weeping like a baby as he's describing all of these things. Finally, he pulls himself together and he says this. He said, you know, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world, but I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. 
Years later, his friend Mark reflected on the conversation and he wrote these words, and I think this is really important for you and for me. He said, we in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've hardly had to suffer injustice. But most people around the globe recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy and great. Of course, his mercy and redemption are even greater, but we need his perfect justice as well. Guys, that's what scene two in Daniel's prophetic vision is all about. If scene one was like a horror movie, scene two is like a great revenge film where the bad guys don't get away with it and the good guys are vindicated and righteousness wins and justice prevails. That's really, really good news. That leads us to the third scene. The victory of Christ and the vindication of his people. Look back at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then look at verse 27. Then... The sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Now this scene is laying out for us what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Oftentimes throughout scripture, this second coming is called the day of the Lord, or the day of wrath, or the day of judgment. Um, it's how the fire flows out of the throne room of God and judges the world. And so in 2 Peter 3.10, we have an example of this. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be what? Burnt up and consumed or dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done, and it will be exposed. Revelation 1.7, behold, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all of the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this, everything in this scene. In the time that we have left today, we're going to pick up on it next week. Because I want to talk about the Antichrist and his persecution and the ultimate vindication. And that's going to bleed into chapter 8. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about it now. But there's something really powerful and really beautiful that I want to show you about Christ before we close today. This is the source or the ultimate source of our hope as exiles. And it's in verse 13. Look at this with me again. He is like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's our hope as exiles, as Christians. First, he's a son of man. That means Christ isn't like those mutant beasts that came up from the depths. It means that he is truly human. He doesn't commit atrocities. He heals the afflicted. He doesn't reign with harshness. He is gentle and lowly in heart. While the kingdoms of men exploit the weak, the kingdom of the Son of Man is given to the weak. Matthew 5, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Who comforts them? The Son of Man. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He is humane, he is kind, he is gentle, and he is compassionate. He is the truest human who ever lived. Everything we've ever longed for. But there's more to be seen of him in verse 13. He's the son of man, but what else is he? He's the cloud rider. And that's the, that's the title of this sermon. I don't usually title my sermons with any thought at all. But one of the reasons I wanted to preach this book to you months and months ago was because of this passage right here. He is the cloud rider. Now listen, this is where it gets really, really cool. In the ancient world, do you know who the cloud rider was? Baal. 
bell. In fact, he was known as the one who rides on the clouds. It was his official title. It was a title of rank. It was a title that signified that he was above all of the other gods. He was the one in control of heaven and earth. He was the one who rode on the clouds. So he had authority and dominion and glory and power. And as a result, he deserved to be worshipped. So throughout their history, the Israelites had a had a really complicated relationship with Baal. They were constantly going back and forth. They'd worship him, and then they'd go back to Yahweh. They'd worship him, and then they'd go back to Yahweh. They'd worship him, and even when they'd go back to Yahweh, they'd keep up the high places in the mountains so that they could keep going back to Baal. And so as the writers of the Old Testament were writing, what they wanted to do is they wanted to show the nation of Israel and all of the nations that surrounded them, that there was actually a God who was higher than Baal. That he wasn't the one who rode the clouds, but there was one who was above him. And so they stole his title and gave it to Yahweh. And so all throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is called the one who rides on the clouds. And it was because they were trying to take this title from Baal and say, hey, this is actually his. He's the God above all other gods. He's the one who should be worshipped. So in Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's one of the most famous songs that we have. You know, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. 10,000 reasons is a great song. Gets a little bit redundant after a while, but it's a great song. <laughs> bless the Lord, O my soul, who makes the clouds his chariots and who rides on the wings of the wind. They're stealing this, this title from the serpent and they're giving it to Yahweh. Worship him. Isaiah 19, look, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt and the idols of Egypt, all of the gods of Egypt are gonna tremble in front of him and the heart of Egypt melts in his inner parts. Every time the Old Testament writers use this imagery of a cloud rider, they are mocking and displacing the serpent. That's the point. They're making a theological statement that the kingdom and the power and the glory and the honor belong to him and to him alone. It's just so profound. Because in this prophecy, guys, we see two very important things about the Messiah. First, we see that he is the son of man, which means he is truly human. And second, we see that he is the rider of the clouds, which means that he is the God above all gods. So he will be a man and he will be God at the same time. They had no category for that. Like, I know that seems really redundant to us because like we were 2,000 years removed, but this was an epiphany that God would become man was actually blasphemy, which is one of the reasons why they hated Jesus so much. But this is the prophecy of Daniel 7. He will be man and he will be God in one. So then Jesus steps onto the scene 500 years later. And when he starts calling himself the son of man, this was his favorite title for himself, by the way. When he starts calling himself the son of man, everyone starts paying attention and all of their ears are pricked and they're like, wait a second, that's Daniel 7. What are you, what are you doing? And then when he calls himself the rider of the clouds, they rip their clothes off and they hang him on a cross for blasphemy. If you don't remember this story, Caiaphas, the high priest, has arrested Jesus. He's holding an illegal trial in the dead of night to try to figure out what to do with him. And he's asking Jesus all these questions. Jesus is just standing there silently, not moved, not worried. Finally, Caiaphas blurts out in anger, just tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 26. He says, you have said it. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all said, he is worthy of death. 
Guys, Jesus isn't giving a cryptic answer to a clear question. He is quoting Daniel 7, 13. He is the final son of David. He is Yahweh incarnate. He is the one that the psalmist sang about and the prophets spoke about and the people longed for, the one who had finally come to redeem and restore humanity. And they heard that and they said, hang him on a cross. We can't stand for this blasphemy. Guys, the first time the Son of Man came, he was crucified. The second time he comes, he's going to conquer. The goal of his first coming was to justify the ungodly. And thank God he did it, because that's why you and I are here. The goal of his second coming will be to judge the ungodly. And so Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun now while there's still time. Because on that day, it'll be too late. The first time he came, he came as a humble baby born in a manger. When he returns, he will come as the God of gods riding on the clouds to receive the dominion and the honor and the power and the glory forevermore. This is the ultimate source of hope for the people of God. Humanity is brutal. Life is painful. Injustice reigns in the kingdoms of men, and it is only going to get worse. But he who makes the clouds his chariot is coming back. And when he does, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to right every single wrong. He's going to heal every single wound, break every chain, free every slave, and satisfy every longing for all eternity. So set your eyes on him. Fix your heart and your hope to his kingdom. The battle is already won. The end has already been decided. The kingdom and the power and the glory are already his, and that means they're already yours too. Your inheritance is secure. And so today we live in light of that hope with the endurance of Paul and with the resolve of Daniel. And with the confidence of those three Hebrew teenagers. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Would you bow your heads and talk to God? Let the Spirit work in your heart and submit to Him wherever He's leading. Just wherever you are. We don't want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And he's telling you something right now that he wants you to do. So tell him you'll do it and ask him for his help.